You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 040, where I continue my conversation with Mike Harris, president of Campbell & Company. This episode is sponsored by Swiss Financial Services. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels kostrup Larsen. I wanted to um, talk a little bit more, uh, more about the trading program and in, in some ways I, I wanted to give you kind of the, the opportunity to, to take us where you want in terms of describing or what you want to um, mention about the trading program and, and so on and so forth. But I want to mention one thing that I noticed that I think is uh, certainly an interesting topic and maybe that's something you want to uh, uh, you know comment on and that is how you create a strategy because um, you know maybe it's a bit difficult for many people to really understand how CTAs work. Some people look at data, create strategies from there, but you actually look at it from a slightly different point of view. You look at ideas and then you find ways of turning that into strategies, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe that's a, st a starting point, but, but feel free to talk about uh, the Managed Futures program and, and how you would uh, really help people understand it. Yeah, I mean, I think that your your comment about um, the way we approach research is really key to understanding our, our, our strategies and, and how we come up with them. So at our core, we're, we're really hypothesis driven. You know, we start the day with what we call an intuitive investment thesis. Uh, so somebody in the research process comes up with an idea that's, that's based on a theory um, of economics or financial markets. And then from there, you know, we use the data and our science to effectively codify that investment thesis. We then run, obviously, the back tests. We, we optimize. We work to make improvements to it. Uh, and then only at that point does the, the research team, we've, we've got five teams in research, that team will effectively, even though, as I said, to protect against key man risk, one individual may have come up with that idea. You know, it's quickly embraced by the team. And if, if they feel strongly about it after they've vetted it at that level and they've walked it through and, and created a framework for it, when they have a model that they're, they're ready to present in really almost an academic type framework, if you think about how uh, a PhD would have to go in front of a, a group of their peers to defend uh, you know, their dissertation in the same way our research teams have to go in front of all of their peers mm. and the other four teams effectively um, get to fully criticize uh, the strategy and, mm. and talk about what are the shortcomings, ask them some very probing questions. And what we find oftentimes is that, you know, this is not an open and shut case. In fact, many times the, the, the quants have to go back and do additional research uh, and really work on that model to answer some of those questions. They then come back and represent. Uh, so this process, there can be quite a bit of back and forth. And in fact, um, sometimes models don't make it through that, that very rigorous peer review process. But uh, when they do, uh, it then gets elevated to uh, myself and, and uh, Will Andrews, our CEO, our head of research, our head of trading, our, our head of operations and, and technology, as well as several members of our risk and portfolio team who sit on our investment committee. Uh, and then we, as well, go through a very similar review process where we're looking at how the strategy is going to be implemented, how it 
may fit into our portfolio and really digging into all of the notes from the peer review process to maybe ask some additional questions about, you know, why should we add this particular strategy, you know, into our portfolio? I think when you think about Campbell, because we're a very mature manager, having been around for a very long time, uh, we have really diversified our portfolio. And and at this point in time, we've got over 30 uh, production models in the portfolio. Um, which, which you know, on one hand, you have to make a very strong case to add a new model. Sure. Uh, it really has to be something that's either unique or, or is much better than an existing uh, production model in order for it to win a place in the, in the portfolio. The other nice thing from an investment committee standpoint is that if we're going to add a new model, model say, we'll call it model 31 into the mix, mm-hmm. it's not making a huge change to the overall portfolio. And so at the end of the day, we're able to just make small improvements over time, yeah. which once again, to your question about analyzing the track record, I think gives more validity to the fact that you know we're not you know knee-jerk reaction changing, taking one model out that's 100% of our capital and replacing it with another model, and then the investor says, well, how can I believe your track record? Uh, we're really focused on making those small improvements, as I said, over time. Mm. Now, you know, I'd love to maybe if you could sort of give an example of what this means to 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 people starting it from it from sort of you know what's the thesis behind it but but let me ask you this question because this is something that that I'm not sure I I personally uh, fully comprehend the advantage of and that is if you if you just look at trend following to me at least you can come up with many theses as to why markets move from a to b um, but in, in, in reality, it's really looking at the data and coming up with models and strategies that are able to capture these price movements, not so much why they happen, because, you know, why do, does coffee move will be different to why does the bonds move? But it's really, to me, more looking at the data and saying, well, we know these markets will move from A to B from time to time. Are there anything we can develop that you know, applied using the same parameters even uh, will capture these moves from, from, you know, in these very diverse markets. Can you, can you explain to me the difference between the way you start looking at it and the way that maybe many other people and, and maybe even including myself would look at it and say, actually, let me look at the data first and, and see if I can come up with something that can capture these things in general without me worrying too much about why they move. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, when you think about kind of the overall, you know, process and, and, and what, you know, when you think about how, how we create uh, these, these strategies uh, with an intuitive investment thesis, I mean, really what we're doing there uh, is saying that, you know, there, there is a thesis behind why we think this model should work. And I know that we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but this really, from my standpoint, gets us to the core of, you know, where does this belong in our portfolio? Why should we add it? And then more importantly, uh, what's if a regime p- comes along, uh, it helps us to identify, you know, quite frankly, when models may need to be removed from the portfolio. Right. You see that there are there are managers out there that I'll call I'll call them data crunchers sure. that just that take massive amounts of data and and whether it's pattern recognition or machine learning or or other types of technology, they 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 really kind of scrub the data and look for these relationships in markets and then they trade them. And and I'm not saying that that doesn't work. I'm sure, sure there's there's many examples of sure. people that have been profitable with those 
strategies. The, the downside in my mind is when you find one of these advantages, you have no idea you know, what's causing it, mm. which means you don't know when it's going to stop working. And, and it could work for a week. It could work for five years. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons we've been around as long as we have is that we build models based on um, that economic thesis that we believe will hopefully stand the test of time. And we won't have to keep changing and building new models every couple of days when maybe a relationship in the market um, is arbitraged out. Hmm. In addition, I think you can expose yourself to significant loss when you don't really know what the, the material reason is that what, for why a market is moving. Now, I'll agree that, that time series momentum is something we've been working on for 40 years. <laughs> so it's probably more difficult for our researchers to come up with a new form of trend following sure. other than just changing the lookbacks than it is, say, in the non-trend following part sure. of the portfolio where there are many more degrees of freedom. Yeah. So I think that we don't have as many aha moments where we're adding in new alpha sources. I think the key for us, as I said, is really twofold. One, that we're making small improvements to existing models. Mm. And I think one of the important things to, to point out in that regard is that when we do that, that's not, you know, we don't let the, the researchers make just willy-nilly changes whenever they feel like turning the dial. That's, they actually have to go through that same robust peer review process just to change one parameter uh, in an existing production model. Sure. And in fact, to safeguard against that, we actually years ago removed the production models from the research department and have them residing with a team called Daily Operations who sits on the trading floor and takes care of our strategies so that the researchers, there's not even the ability for them to to, to change production code. Sure, They're sure. forced to go through that, that very robust process. Now, on the, on the other front, you know, we, we also have projects that I would consider to be much more high impact, if you will. And that might be, you know, we want to diversify so that, you know, yes, we have momentum in the portfolio. And yes, it's been, it was market-based for, for a very long time. But as I, as I walked you through it, in the last five years, we've actually found two new ways to, to trend follow sure. um, using baskets of, of markets in sector and factor. So even there with enough thoughtful research, we were able to find a new form of an existing alpha source in the portfolio. And, and, it, and it, it applies the same way to whether it's carry or cross sector or mean reversion. We don't want to have all of our eggs in, in one model having that be our mean reversion allocation. We want to have multiple versions of mean reversion to be trading in the portfolio because we know that there are many different degrees of freedom that, that we can experiment with. Sure. Other examples might be uh, a new form of portfolio construction or a new way to approach, approach risk management. Um, even as you alluded to, the information source or data that you're using. There's many different places to get data from. There's different ways to approach the data, to clean the data. Sure. Um, and, and so all of these I would, I would see as much more of a high impact. They don't happen as frequently in the research department as making small improvements to, to existing strategies. I think that's, that's, that, that, that's a great answer. And I think the point about also being able to maybe easily identify when a model is not working anymore, I think that's a, that's a really, really important point. And it's something that I've seen many of uh, my listeners uh, come to me and say, you really should uh, make sure you ask uh, people how do they know when their models are not working. So I appreciate that. I have a, a follow-up question on, on, on this uh, about thesis um, take short-term interest rates, you know, they're pretty close to zero. Would this constitute something where you would say, 
we're not going to trade them from the long side anymore. Or maybe you just obviously could move them out further in time to give some more uh, room in terms of the short term curve. But I mean, is this just to visualize an example for people uh, listening to this? Is this something that could constitute, you know, a, a change like that where you say, well, the thesis is interest rates are not going to go below zero. So we're not going to take continue to buy it at 99.9 when it gets to that point. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a, a great point to make, uh, and in fact, that's actually something that happened here at Campbell uh, in the last few years during that uh, quantitative easing cycle, where uh, it was the race to zero by many central banks. And so, because we were able, we had that uh, I- investment thesis, we were able to go back and look at some of the strategies that were trading short-term interest rates. And to your point, in some cases, we made the determination that we didn't feel that the investment thesis uh, allowed for uh, trading short-term interest rates in the current regime. So we actually remove short-term rates from those portfolios. In other cases, to your point, we may have moved them further out the curve sure. where there was liquidity and things like Eurodollars and Euribor, you certainly have uh, deeper liquidity moving out the curve. And so if, if the uh, market expectation was that uh, interest rates were not going to rise until 2015, instead of trading a, maybe a 2013 Eurodollar contract, sure. you you move it out you know, you know, eight quarters to uh, to something closer to when the market believes there's going to be a change in interest rate policy. So sure. that would that would be a, a great example. I, I did want to mention since we we've already we started to cover this very important topic of when do you remove a model? Yeah. And I mentioned that all important, you know, if the validity of the investment thesis is challenged, if we move into a regime where we feel that it's not going to work in that particular environment, you know, for us, you know, there there are three reasons uh, why we would remove a model and that's actually one of them, but I do I do want to comment on the other two. So the the first would be, you know, that that every model when it's presented to the investment to both the peer review and the investment uh, committee for approval has a a certain set of performance expectations. Um, many people in the, in the marketplace would define this as kind of uh, the worst historical drawdown. Sure. Uh, and this gives you a metric to say if it's tr- if the model is trading at this volatility and we believe it should be it should make this amount of money and it sh- its worst loss should be this. Then once again, just like our entire approach is rule based. We can very clearly say these are some of the metrics or stops, if you will, that we're going to use as an investment committee as to when we're going to maybe pull a model or deallocate it from the uh, from the production portfolio. Sure. Uh, and then the third reason would be really just what I'll call capital preservation. Mm. Um, there may be an instance where um, you know if something happens very very quickly, say a model loses or makes a significant uh, amount of, of either profit or loss in, in five days. Mm. And, and so you don't have the time to really say, have we changed regimes? What's happening in the world? You can't really um, uh, potentially invalidate the, the investment thesis. Sure. And maybe let's say the worst drawdown in history of the model is 40% and you've lost 25. So you haven't hit your stop effectively from a drawdown, but there's something really, you know, interesting and unique and different about this. Um, so it, it's causing you to say, from a capital preservation standpoint, because there's something unique happening here that we don't understand, maybe we want to deallocate to this for a time yeah. until we get more clarity on that. And I, I think that you know, my, the important thing that I tried to stress there is everyone thinks about um, you know removing a, a model from production when it loses money. Mm. And we try to be very absolute when we think about um, performance. So 
you know, if a model makes more money than you expect it to, particularly in a short period of time, mm-hmm. that's just as much reason for you to op- you know put up the hood and take a look at the engine, uh, you know, as as when you lose money, because both can be indicators um, that there's something happening with the model that that you had not expected, yeah. and and the way that we do this really, our investment committee meets every single morning for about an hour uh, to look at you know our positions, what's changed overnight or in the last twenty four hours to look at the risk in the portfolio and to and constantly reviewing you know the performance both short term and historical of all of our strategies so that um, if we see something developing you know we can we can address it you know quite quickly mm, very important point definitely Mike thanks for that now there are many secrets <laughs> I'm sure to the success of your systems but I wanted to ask a, a specific question about position sizing because I think often people believe that it is where we buy or where we sell that really makes the performance Uh, but I would challenge that a little bit because I think that position sizing and risk management uh, is actually playing a really important role in uh, the success of these strategies what do you think about this topic Well, we uh, we think about risk, um, and I and I, I do. I think position sizing is just one of the elements within how you risk manage your portfolio. Sure. Um, we define risk in two ways. We we look at what we'll call the vertical risk, um, which is really maintaining a stable level of risk within the portfolio, uh, and we do that using kind of a systematic risk targeting framework, which is a model that helps you achieve your annualized risk target. Uh, we also look at what I'll call his, his horizontal risk, um, which is balancing the composition of your risk. And this is really where, to your point, it comes into you know limiting your risk by market, um, limiting your risk by asset class, by uh, strategy, um, and even kind of looking at the correlations and and looking into the key risk factors, um, you know things like flight to quality and uh, you know global equity exposure, global bond exposure, commodities, some of the more common risk factors to make sure that you don't have you know all of all of your eggs in one basket. Sure. I mean, one of the beauties of systematic traders is that we can trade 80 to 200 markets and we are spreading our risk across many different positions. And that in itself, that diversity helps us to not take large losses on sure. any one trade. But you have to be careful because when you're running a portfolio of 30 strategies, mm. um, if 29 of them like a particular market and you don't have uh, systematic controls in your portfolio construction, um, they may all load up on one particular position and you would have um, outsized risk that, that you weren't expecting. So when it comes to specifically the market, you know we look at, at three factors. First, we're looking at obviously the risk of that market, and and there we focus on on a VAR limit. Mm-hmm. We also have to look at exchange limits. We are a multi-billion-dollar CTA, and and so in some cases we may, particularly in areas like maybe commodities, sure. um, that we may be close to an exchange limit. So we have to monitor for that. And then lastly, as I've talked about, and, and something that's near and dear to my heart as as a former global head of trading, we have to be careful about liquidity. Right. So we're always looking at how liquid is that market. What's the turnover look like? Um, what are the trading costs associated with a bid offer spread? And we don't want to be too big in a particular market that 
may not be as liquid. So in analyzing those those three kind of risk, liquidity, and, ex- and exchange or regulatory limits, um, we're always using the lowest of those three. Mm-hmm. So for any given market, it's different for us in regards to which one of those three we're, we're utilizing, but always constantly focused on that framework. And if you look at the models, you were just giving an example there, if, if, you know, if 29 out of the 30 models likes a particular market, I mean, how does it work in practice? Do all 29 get allowed to get in, but then each has to take a smaller position and you adjust it accordingly? Or are you more focused on giving the uh, models who uh, identify a market opportunity in a particular market first that they get full uh, allocation of risk and then you just cut it off after 15 markets, for example? How, how does that work in practice? Yep. So um, there's really two ways. So the, the first layer is that uh, we do take um, you know the, the the limits for each market and effectively spread them out across all of the strategies, so that mm. every strategy has an opportunity to trade uh, a portion of our total aggregate position. Mm. So that's kind of where we start. But to your point, there may be an environment where a uh, number of strategies start to build a position in a in a, in a market. And or maybe a dynamic, as I said, you know, risk can change. You know, I'm sure that there were people a few weeks ago that had a certain size position <laughs> in, say, you know, equities or currencies, sure. and then volatility, you know, triples overnight, and the model is, is quickly saying, oh, I don't need to have this big of a position on. So you start to see some changes, whether it's volatility spiking or or going down. It, it change your positions can change quite rapidly. Mm. So here, the real benefit of having an independent risk model. Uh, is that that model can effectively take what I'll call offsetting positions to a strategy. Sure. And what this does is it, it, it protects the efficacy of a strategy and it and its return profile because the model said it wanted to put on 100 crude, but because of your total limits, you, you've said that it can only take 90. Mm. So the risk model effectively takes a short position of 10 crude to reduce Campbell's aggregate to only 90 in that strategy, mm. but the model in its in its uh, in its back test and in its simulated returns still has on that hundred lot crude position, so that if that's the decision that the model wanted to make, we can still validate that. Uh, the investment thesis is working and 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 know what its true return profile would have been. Mm-hmm. The other nice aspect is is that then that risk system effectively has a P and L, so right. you can yeah, see over ask, time. Yeah how it's doing how yeah. much of a how much of a cost is it on your strategies or how much you know has it saved you um, it, we like to say that over time we want, we like to see that line kind of isolating around zero where there are periods where it hurts you and there's a cost associated with risk management and then there are periods obviously where it helps you and you don't want to see a trend to that line you just want to see it constantly as I said, slightly positive, slightly negative. Hmm. But it, it's important because I think that many people, uh, and I think that this is where where you have you know human beings doing your risk management, and and the construct of maybe that committee changes over time, or people's um, attitudes about risk change. Um, they may not have a PL associated with the decisions that they make to curtail risk. Uh, and that can certainly have a real degradation of sharp ratio over time. So it's something that, that that we focus on and is very important to us is having that systematic approach to risk management. Hmm. I had a sort of a philosophical question uh, now that you brought up risk uh, a little bit, and that is often when managers first start and when their AUM is relatively small, they have a certain attitude towards risk. And then suddenly they become bigger and they become successful. And 
very often what happens in, in any business, not just the trading business, people become more risk averse because suddenly there's much more to lose. How do you think it affects, uh, you know, our space? And is this the reason maybe that we see sometimes firms that when they do become bigger, suddenly their targeted value at risk or their targeted volatility drops significantly? And and how do you how do you look at that? I mean, do you target the same return, the same volatility that you did when you were significantly smaller, or how how does that play in? So it's a great question. So um, if I look at just Campbell as an example, sure. um, really, you know, one of the things that happens um, as you grow and develop as a as a multi billion dollar CTA, um, I think the natural tendency is that you you do more research, you come up with more ideas, and if you believe, you know, we believe at our core as an industry that diversification is what we're selling. Um, you know, in, in many in many ways, that low correlation of traditional assets is one of the main tenets that we are describe. So mm. we believe, you know, not only are we diversifying our clients' portfolios by adding uh, our investment to the mix, but we also, we believe in diversity so much that we want to also uh, really kind of spread out the risk within our own portfolios. And as we go through that research process and we add new models to the mix that have a low correlation to the existing ones, that in itself, if you're not doing active risk targeting, will bring down your risk profile. Mm. It's one of the reasons that it, uh, you know, kind of in the post-08 period where we did a lot of active research, particularly around the area of risk management, we decided to employ this, this systematic risk targeting yeah. where we've decided that you know 15% annual vol is a target that we're looking to achieve. And we let this model, just despite the offsetting positions of various lowly correlated models, um, to effectively lever up and lever down the overall portfolio so that we can achieve uh, that desired risk going forward. And that 15% from Campbell's perspective was arrived at because we felt that many investors are comfortable with the equity markets, as an example. Sure. And if you look at the long-term annualized uh, volatility of the stock market, it's about 15%. So mm. we felt that that was something that investors had a, a, a reasonable comfort level with. And of course, when we talk to people and make that comparison, we're very quick to point out the fact that risk in the equity market is an outcome. It's not being targeted. So though you may arrive at a 15% annualized vol, sure. you may have an up 30% year and a down 40% year, mm. whereas as, because we're managing the risk um, in an active fashion, hopefully, obviously, our, our tails are not going to be nearly as large. Uh, and then at the end of the day, we'll come much closer. I think it's about knowing your client and knowing mm -hmm. what their risk tolerances are, having those conversations and being very open um, with your clients about where, where you see the portfolio going. And what we've heard from our client base uh, has been that 15% has been something that they're very comfortable with. So that's what we continue to offer and, and risk target to achieve. But to the extent that um, you know we have clients that may want a lower risk profile, then once again, I think the important thing is maybe creating a, an offshoot or another product that's at a lower vol sure. um, so that you know clients could get that um, without um, making a change to your flagship vehicle. Because once again, then if you're, if you're going to make that change, then the, the first question that comes up a lot in our business, particularly recently, is going to be, <laughs> okay, well, are the fees going to come down as well? Uh, and so I think a lot of our conversations around that are around um, selling effectively volatility, um, or, or I should say volatility pricing. Sure. So you're buying units of vol effectively when you invest. 
Sure. And so if the volatility comes down, then then naturally the price should as well. Sure. No, uh, good point. Now, <clears throat> part of volatility, unfortunately, is downside volatility. And that brings me to my next uh, topic, which is drawdowns. And I know you've already talked about it. So I don't want to spend too much time on sort of on the general theme, but I want to try and help investors and potential investors and other traders uh, aspiring to be the next Campbell to to deal better with drawdown. So I have two particular questions I would like your your comments on. One is just from your own personal perspective, how you handle the emotional roller coaster when you go through a drawdown. And the second thing I'd like to ask you, and that is how do we better educate investors so that they understand and feel comfortable with a drawdown? Because I think many people think of a drawdown as kind of an open-ended risk. And if they're down 20% in a manager, it's never going to stop. And what we know about these strategies is it will stop and it will turn around very quickly and it will recover very often, very quickly. And so it's such a shame to see many investors bail out at the worst possible time. And I think that's something where we need to recognize that they need more insight or maybe more education even though you've been educating this industry for for four decades but how do we better help them but maybe again starting out with your own way of dealing with the emotional roller coaster of a drawdown well i mean i think it's it's hard because we care very much about our clients yeah. and and when the phones are ringing and they're they're nervous and upset um you know we, it, it that that emotion sometimes obviously gets gets carried on to to myself and sure. and, the, and those around me at the firm that said you know i think we have the the benefit of 40 years of experience that it does come back mm. and 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 we've we've done countless uh, bits of research to to show people that in fact drawdown recovery and managed futures is is much better than traditional assets i mean sure. i think uh, the average drawdown we've seen just in managed futures as an asset class is typically around 7 months mm. i mean if you compare that to traditional assets i mean mm. we we haven't heard a lot about the lost decade for some time because stocks have been on this tear for the last five years, up 130% in the United States. Mm. But prior to that, we had a 10 years of, of negative returns in the, in the S&P 500. So it, it took literally 10 years to get to new high water. So um, the drawdowns uh, happen in, in all asset classes, in all strategies. And I think the important thing is, is that you've got to you know, continue to stay the course and have focus that you know, the reason that there are back tests, the reason that it's a systematic process is to take the human emotions out because we continuously talk about the fact that human human beings don't make the best traders. Mm -hmm. And so we get someone to embrace that and effectively allocate to a systematic investment process so that they're not trading those markets themselves. But then there there's this feeling of, you know, we get people who stop trading the markets, but then what they what do they start doing? They start trading managers. Sure. Where they they you know they're seeing to your point instead of the P and L of gold they're seeing the P and L of the manager mm. and they start to get nervous as they see losses and what I try to tell people is the things you should focus on just like when we do risk management on our existing strategies when you invested in the product what were the performance uh, characteristics that that you were sold on mm. what were your return expectations what were your drawdown expectations have you exceeded or not achieved those um, that should be you know number one on the list. 
then has there been style drift, mm. right? Is is this manager claimed to be a medium or long-term trend follower and they've got a negative correlation to the the, the Barclays, uh, you know, trend following or new edge trend index? Sure. Um, and, and then, you know, I think also as people are doing more and more due diligence, you also have to focus on the operational side of the business. Are there concerns there about uh, the management team or about uh, the way that the firm is organized or uh, their long-term viability? So to me, those are more of the things that you should be focused on. Um, and that at the end of the day, there are countless examples that you need to just stay in the, stay in the investment uh, because you never know when that turn is going to come. And oftentimes we see that people sell at the absolute worst time, which is at the bottom of a move. We, we actually have done some really interesting research recently on what I'll call drawdown control models um, to, to try to see whether or not we ourselves can put an overlay on top of some of our models to help control the amount of what I'll call volatility of returns. Mm-hmm. And as we've gone out and talked to our investors, because really the findings were that, yes, they do work and they limit some of your drawdowns, but they come at a cost. Yeah. And so as we talk to uh, particularly institutional investors, what we find in, in many cases, the more sophisticated investors, they recognize this, they see a degradation in the sharp ratio as a result of a drawdown control system. And they most of them say politely, no, thank you. Mm. That said, there are some investment products out there with less sophisticated investors, and we see this as something that in the future, you know, we, we may continue to talk to clients and we may experiment with, um, which is effectively providing that utility to clients to, um, to keep down the noise of whether it's daily P&L, weekly, monthly, quarterly, or annual P&L um, to smooth out the ride a little bit so that um, you know, the, one of the, the, the popular antidotes I've heard from some of the investors on the, on the or maybe less sophisticated on the institutional side in, in the United States was, you know, don't get me pulled in front of my board. Mm. Um, if, you're, if you're down 2%, <laughs> I don't get pulled in front of my board. If you're down 4 um, we're having a conversation and, and, and people who are less educated about this than I am are going to demand that, that they pull the money from the strategy. And I'm sure that'll be just the time when you guys recover from your drawdown. So, you know, at the end of the day, as I said, the jury's still out. We, we, we believe that for some clients, it might make sense. For others, uh, it does not. Um, but you know, and the example I use with, with many investors, it's, it's a little bit like as an equity investor, you can go out every year and buy puts on the S and P to give you some pro- portfolio protection, but you're going to pay the premium to do that. And that's going to degradate your long-term return. If you are in fact, a long-term investor who's comfortable with the equity market and the risk that it, that, 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 it, that is the outcome of it, then maybe you just put the trade on and hold it. Uh, and not sell when it when it goes down twenty or thirty percent. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the other thing I've struggled with myself to understand is that why investors, when they look at portfolios of say CTAs or in general any investment strategy, really, they can look at the markets and they see that the markets are inherently volatile. They swing and and that's what they do. But then they think we have this magical machine where we can put these markets into and remove all volatility and produce a twenty percent return every year. It just doesn't exist, yet that's what people really want us to do. And then the option strategies um, you know, often come along and it looks like it's risk-free and it does make 20% and there is no volatility. And then you know, once in a, in a while, we see them being completely uh, you know, uh, taken down by uh, a spike in, in volatility. So 
Yeah, it's a little bit confusing for me as well as to why people think that volatility is something that you can remove from your uh, from your investments. Uh, it doesn't quite work like that. Now, speaking about <clears throat> risk management, just the final question I had here was just a, a general thing because clearly you spend a lot of time managing all parts of risk uh, in your business, in your strategy, et cetera, et cetera. But is there anything when you go to bed at night and you put your head on your pillow and you think, hmm, I wouldn't want that to happen. Is there anything that could keep you up at night um, from from that point of view? Well, there are uh, there are plenty of things that keep me up at night, and and fortunately, because we're systematic, the markets are usually not what keeps me awake. In fact, uh, we run a 24-hour day operation here in Baltimore. We have teams in, who trade the Asian markets and the European markets for us, as well as operational and support staff. Sure. Um, so so for, for that regard, I, I don't have to, to stay awake wait, worrying about the markets. Our, both our systematic modeling approach, as well as our approach to risk management um, in a rule-based fashion, uh, allows me to not worry in the same way that, say, a discretionary macro uh, trader or manager would have to worry about, you know, what What's the BOJ going to do tonight at their meeting? Yeah. Um, the things that keep me awake are, are, are other forms of risk. Uh, certainly, systemic risk, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a terrorist attack like 9/11, uh, or a what I'll call kind of more of a, a, a natural disaster mm-hmm. like the the earthquake and tsunami in Japan that created a nuclear crisis. I mean, when I think about times where, as an investment committee, you know, we don't have to to intervene uh, very often. It, it usually happens every couple of years. But that was in that was an environment where you know we had to move in and, and take action where we actually um, took the, our positions off in, in all of the Japanese markets because uh, we were hearing from the market participants in Tokyo that they were fearing a nuclear cloud uh, coming from the from the meltdown sure. and that many of them were leaving Tokyo and that there was fear that the Japanese exchanges were going to close and not reopen for a period of time. So you know these are things that and the models with their data can see almost everything, but things like those systemic risks, they can't see. And there are times where we have to uh, to step in and take action. So, so those types of things keep me awake. Counterparty risk, um, we haven't heard about it a lot because sure. as we put more and more distance between us and Lehman Brothers, um, it's not as focused on, but... I, I do think that there will be another time where we will we will face um, uh, you know a, the failure of a, of a counterparty, whether it's a, a big bank broker dealer or somebody a smaller player in the in the futures and FX markets. Sure. I, I like to tell our clients that um, we have a very robust framework for monitoring all of our counterparties, and one of the things that we've really worked to do over the years is you know spread out our counterparty relationships so that we're clearing accounts. Uh, at multiple firms. And, mm. and when I say that, I mean, not that we as a firm have multiple relationships with different clearers, but actually take large accounts and split them so that they have open sure. accounts at two different clearing firms so that in the event that we have to move business, not only is the, the documentation papered up, mm. but the pipes are open and flowing and tested. Yeah. And we can literally do that in a day. Yeah. I think that's important because if you think about it, Lehman Brothers unwound in about two months. Mm. MF Global took about two weeks. And so mm. my prediction is that the <laughs> next counterparty that goes down, it's going to happen in about two days. Sure. And so I don't think people are going to have the time to respond. No. The last one that I'll just mention is redundancies. Mm. I don't think that 
really people focus enough on their, their, their BCP or their business continuity plans. I think that um, having things like a secondary location, if you only have one primary building like we do, um, having uh, backup power, having generators, having backup telecom, you know, why, uh, the, the various uh, infrastructure hitting, hitting your building in some cases in multiple places and taking multiple uh, routes to get to wherever your destination is. I, I think that, that those are things that, that I worry about, mm-hmm. making sure that we've hardened our infrastructure. And I worry sometimes that, that other inter- industry participants uh, take those things for granted but uh, you know we live and breathe this stuff every day yeah no absolutely all the uh, I remember when I worked in London all the fire drills we had to do from time to time back when they still had uh, terrorist attacks over there so uh, yeah no, that is important what about regulation Mike uh, I'm thinking here as something that would uh, not necessarily keep you awake at night, but certainly here in Europe, we've seen uh, from time to time that suddenly regulators, when equities go down, they decide, oh, you can't do short selling anymore. Do you foresee or could you foresee um, regulators really making it difficult for us to trade these kind of strategies at some point? I think there's always that risk. Um, one of the real benefits of managed futures is that we've always embraced um, trading on regulated uh, exchanges. Mm. Uh, and so in that sense, in many cases, I've told people that the current regulation that I think the marketplace is dealing with, uh, specifically things like Dodd-Frank, um, may actually be a benefit to our industry. Because right. you think about it, what they're doing is taking all of the OTC uh, interest rate swaps and CDS, and they're forcing them into a central clearing model. So they're pushing them onto exchange, which is making data uh, more available. Uh, it, it's certainly upping the the, the regulation uh, and the control around those markets. And it may actually open up uh, some new opportunities uh, for, for, man- for the managed future space uh, to be able to trade uh, a wider array of markets most of the the regulation in its current form is not focused on us. But uh, I'd be lying to you if I said that that's not another thing that keeps me awake at night because uh, we've seen certainly the pendulum swing in the last five years from uh, uh, an unregulated marketplace to a much more regulated one. Um, and I, and to be quite honest with you, from an industry standpoint, it's a bit upsetting to me because I love the fact that you know three guys could leave a particular firm hmm. or a bank and go out with an idea and start their own CTA. And unfortunately, I feel that the barrier to entry has become so great. I've seen mm. um, some wild estimates that, you know, at a bare minimum, you need 50 to $100 million uh, to get a business started, and in some cases more, mm. uh, in order just to hire the legal and compliance folks to help you be, you know, to, to, to check all the boxes and cross the T's and dot the I's. As a, as a large manager, uh, Campbell's very fortunate that not only are we uh, heavily regulated in the United States and abroad, uh, and have been for years, but we've built up a team to be able to deal with this. So um, as a business person, um, you know, I, I worry about running the company, just like our head of research worries about um, creating new strategies and looking at our production portfolio. I, I'm not, e- even though I seem to be inundated with it every day, I don't have to live and breathe and read every single reg because I have a team of people doing that for me. And I sure. think that that's unfortunate for for our business, but um, it's just a consequence of some of the bad actors that the marketplace has experienced in recent years. Sure, absolutely. Now, my quote-unquote final research question is, 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 is somewhat broader because 
One of the things that has been brought up um, from time to time is the ability for some of these strategies to make money when interest rates go up again at some point. You know, we've had 30 years of uh, essentially fall in interest rates. And I know that you've done some some, uh, looking into this and some research uh, about how these strategies tend to perform when interest rates uh, go up. So uh, perhaps you uh, could share a little bit of uh, insight to uh, what your findings have been. Sure. Um, We actually did the research and wrote a white paper on it last year. And I I have to say, because it's such a topic in the global marketplace, Mm. um, that that it's it's, the the uptake on it's been incredible. I've never seen a white paper have this much shelf life. But I think it's it's because it it is uh, investment um, here in the U.S. did a study a couple months ago of all of the various categories of institutional investors. And I don't think it was surprising that every single category listed it as their number one macro risk that they were that they feared is, is yeah. higher interest rates. So, yeah. you know, hearing this from from the larger audience and from our clients in particular, we did this research and going back 40 years, not looking at Campbell per se, but, you know, creating a, a very simple, basic trend following model and looking at its performance during periods of higher interest rates. And, you know, our findings were threefold. One, and probably the, the most interesting, was that we actually found that in period of higher interest rates, um, CTAs actually were more profitable than in periods of uh, declining interest rates, which is a bit surprising given all the money that CTAs have made um, uh, from declining interest rates in sure. recent years. Um, we found that there were really three three important drivers uh, for that performance. Uh, the first one is probably the most obvious to uh, you know investors in the space, and that's because we're accessing the futures markets. Um, there's that implied leverage, sure. whereby you know eighty cents of the dollar. Uh, invested with us uh, effectively goes into a cash account and, and is sitting in treasuries. Now, while that's gotten us very low yield, just a matter of basis points in the in the last few years, mm. as interest rates go higher, uh, the the interest income associated with managed futures will go up and uh, provide a tailwind to the strategy. Sure. But I think more importantly, the the other two major takeaways were um, for many investors who aren't familiar with with uh, with with managed futures, uh, they don't realize that as a, as a, an actively traded long short portfolio. We don't have a bias to be long fixed income like many managers do. And so, you know, as effectively the trend changes and we start to see interest rates trend higher, obviously bond prices are then trending lower. Our strategies will pick up on that effectively enable us to go short, which is once again, something that unless you're investing in a, uh, you know, CTA or a global macro manager is probably not something many, many um, strategies are doing. Mm. Um, And we'll we'll effectively like equities uh, in in a downward moving price uh, environment, Create, create a little bit of a hedge, hopefully, in, in people's portfolios for the fixed income that they're not going to be able to exit um, you know, in their portfolio. And then and the last thing is that we found in, in our research that in, in many of these periods where interest rates go higher, it, it ends up leading at some point to an equity market correction. Mm. Uh, and I think that makes intuitive sense. Central banks are raising rates to effectively tap the break, uh, brakes on growth. And sometimes they, they <laughs> tend to tap them a little too hard and, <laughs> and things slow down. Certainly, um, spending both on a retail and a corporate level uh, is reined in when when interest rates go up, uh, which leads to lower corporate earnings, le- less consumer spending, uh, and that in, in in part will lead to an environment where equities may turn over and our ability to be short both bonds and equities in that type of environment really leads to some some good returns. And many of those periods are, are research found. Um, 
Just looking at the CTA industry as a whole, I mean, uh, a company like yours has been around pretty much from the beginning, um, have seen some changes in the way the universe of managed futures has, has uh, evolved. And what I mean by that is that it was a very US-dominated business, uh, and then suddenly something changed, and it has over the last 10 years become a very European-dominated uh, type of business uh, with some of the largest firms being based in, in, in Europe. Do you have a, a view on, 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 uh, on this uh, development, um, and maybe is it going back to the US again, do you think? Well, um, I, I think, uh, you know, my first comment there is that, you know, we, we love competition. I don't think we would be involved in the financial markets if we didn't like, you know, a good hearty competition. And so it's actually been a really interesting phenomenon to see the growth of managed futures in Europe over mm. the last 10 years. Um, and I, I think that we just feel that it's it's been great for for investors, for, uh, for managers. We, the bar has been lifted. Um, and uh, if anything, it's created um, a, a heightened sense uh, or awareness of the of the industry and the asset class uh, which is good for all of us and we, we do believe that the rising tide kind of lifts all boats in that sense mm. as it pertains to US managers um, you know it, it is interesting because there was a period of time there a few years ago where European managers seemed to be outperforming a bit there was kind of loose talk in the industry that uh, maybe there was a competitive advantage to, to being European but like all things there was a bit of mean reversion last year um, you looked at most of the outperformance uh, in, in the space whether it was Campbell uh, Crable or other US managers Managers seem to have better performance uh, to to many of the European managers, and so oftentimes when I'm out there talking to investors, I encourage that they have geographic diversity within their CTA portfolio and select what they believe to be the best of breed managers in both Europe and the United States. I mean, as it pertains to Campbell, um, you know, obviously we like being in the United States, but specifically we like being in Baltimore because mm -hmm. um, being away from a major um, city center like New York or London means that, you know, there's a couple of, of great benefits. Number one, we don't have to worry about, uh, you know, being uh, uh, somebody saying that there's groupthink. Sure. Uh, we don't hire that many people from from other CTAs. And I think there's it's always been the chatter that in the London markets, you can you can go from one managed future shop to another without even changing tube stops. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's the possibility there that that ideas are being recycled and just changed slightly. We also have the, the benefit that because you know, not only are there, we're the only managed future shop in Baltimore, but there aren't that many financial firms. So, in order for us to hire, for the for the with the exception of academia, most people they have to relocate to Baltimore, and that means it keeps our turnover um, very low relative to many of our peers, and that builds up that uh, incredible kind of knowledge of of ex and experience that we have here. As I said, our executive team, as an example, has over a hundred years of combined Campbell experience. And then the last one that I'll mention, and and we're not alone in this because other uh, managed futures firms have also formed uh, strategic academic partnerships, but um, you know, we have the, the uh, a, a very uh, nice uh, ability to partner with Johns Hopkins University, which is certainly one of the top universities in the sure. world. 
Sure. Um, we have a great relationship with our applied mathematics department and, and overall have created a partnership where our PhDs can go down and teach graduate level courses for them. So sometimes when, when some of our, our quants uh, get the urge to teach again, they have that ability. And at the same time, while they're down there and conversing with other professors, we can really try to handpick uh, some of the young people that are coming up through their PhD programs uh, to bring them in as interns. And then if we have a good experience with them, uh, we have hired several of them to join our teams. Yeah, no, great stuff. Very interesting. Now, <clears throat> this podcast essentially, Mike, is you know allowing me to ask questions of the best minds in the business that I'm personally interested in and, and curious about. But I wanted to give you a chance and say, if you were to ask a question of my next guest or a peer uh, in, in this business to you, and, and maybe even the guest would be the biggest in our you know, business, David Harding, what would you be curious about asking him? I think more than anything, the question that um, we always um, feel is not off asked enough in our industry is, is around how a manager approaches risk management. I think mm -hmm. that you're very well versed in our space. And so you've asked a number of questions about it. But um, just in using recent due diligence visits as an example, we tend to spend multiple hours describing our strategies, how we build them, and the alpha that, that we're seeking to uh, extract from the marketplace. And we spend almost the entire day focusing just on the strategies, right, in that, in that process. And then, you know, literally in the last 15 minutes before somebody has to leave to catch their train or their flight, uh, they, they kind of at the very end of the list say, and tell me about your risk management process. Mm. And I just think that that's a, a real oversight by many people. Some don't ask it at all. Others don't leave enough time. And so I, I would spend a lot more time focusing in on the risk management, uh, both the process, how it was built, what you're doing in, as far as future research. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what alpha strategies you have in your portfolio. We really believe that risk management is the difference between a good manager and an okay manager. And so if I were to ask a question to another uh, manager, if I was doing due diligence on a CTA, I think that would be my, my number one question is, tell me about your views on risk management and, and how you believe you have a competitive edge in, in this space. Fantastic. Great stuff. Now, last section um, that I have uh, is what I tend to call sort of general and fun. So a little bit different to the more uh, strategy specific questions. But I wanted to ask from your experience, if there's someone sitting out there who really would like to find out, uh, you know, what it takes to become a great trader or build a great firm or, or whatever it might be, what are some of the things that you think a, a manager uh, or a person needs to possess in terms of of traits or, or, or crafts in, in order to uh, become successful? I, I think, you know, without a doubt, uh, humility is at the top of, of, the, uh, of the list. Um, you're going to be humbled in this business. You're going to be humbled in the markets. You'll be humbled as a, as a business owner, as, a, as, as somebody that's uh, approaching um, a difficult environment. So, um, I think that's kind of the top of the list. In addition to that, you have to have integrity. Mm. Uh, you have to have passion. 
I, t- I tell people it's one of my favorite interview questions. You know, what gets you out of the bed in the morning? Hmm. And uh, and there are people that just absolutely live and breathe the financial markets and and love it. I I, I tell folks that uh, one of my loves, as I mentioned, was was sports, and in hmm. particular, I love to play golf. And you know, the reason I like to play golf is the same reason I love the financial markets, and that is, you know, until I go out and shoot a perfect score of eighteen, <laughs> which between you and me is probably never going to happen. Sure. I'm always motivated because I know that there's always things I can do to improve. Mm. And financial markets are no different. If we're up 15% this year, I'm going to be asking myself, why weren't we up 16? And I'm sure our clients will too. Mm. And so it's, it's a problem that you can never solve. Um, and I, so I think that having that passion, that, that kind of what I'll call competitive spirit, mm-hmm. is, is crucial uh, to being successful in this business. Uh, and, then, and then, you know, without a doubt, I think communication. Sure. You have to be uh, willing to be open and transparent to, you know, hopefully you like uh, uh, speaking with other people around the world and, uh, and you do a good job of, of communicating your message. Mm, absolutely. Great, great, great said. Are there any, in your career, are there any books that you came across that you read that really inspired you and helped you get to sort of where you are today both maybe it could be from a business management point of view or it could be from a a trading point of view something that that you would recommend other people to to read since you're an avid reader sure Uh, when i was running the trading desk i I had a list of books as i said i'm an avid reader uh that i would uh you know require uh my my traders to read as an example and one of the top of the of the list was always uh, the very, and it started out as just market wizards, but now he's written several books um, after that, you know, hedge fund market wizards, and I believe in um, other market wizards um, by, by um, Jack Schwager. Sure. Uh, I love those books because, you know, first off, they're short, they're a series of short stories about different people in the marketplace trading in different environments, in different countries, in different markets. Um, and really, I think it's really what, what drove me to systematic trading because as you read through those books, I mean, there are a few clients in there. There's a lot of discretionary guys. And you hear this story all over and over again. And that is, you know, that in their early career, um, they really wish they'd had a better sense of risk management. <laughs> they, they, they feel that they'd had tighter stops. Uh, and that it was that some experience where they effectively lost their entire account and that were able to then go on to be incredibly successful was that learning experience mm. uh, that drove them to having a better what I'll call rules-based approach to their craft. Mm. Um, whether or not they decided to put it into a system like we have in Managed Futures or just had a, a set of rules that as a discretionary trader that they lived by, um, I really got that sense from those books. And, and I hopefully um, our employees that, that have read it also got that. You know, the other book for me, like Keith, I am really a, a student of the of the charts. I love technical analysis. Mm-hmm. So what I call the the futures bible of technical analysis is technical analysis of futures markets by John Murphy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I always chuckle as I go through the industry and see that big fat blue and white book <laughs> sitting on people's bookshelves because you know published back in the mid '80s, it, it really for a lot of us was how we learned about um, you know, how to do technical analysis and to look at uh, the marketplace from from purely a, a chart uh, basis. And then interestingly enough, I haven't read it yet, but I just got a copy of uh, Trend Falling with Managed Futures, mm-hmm. um, which was just released by uh, Grazerman and Kaminsky. Sure. And certainly that's uh, near and dear to my heart. So I'm really interested to, to read a book that's a bit more quantitative 
um, uh, when it comes to uh, looking at our craft as opposed to some of the more um, high-level general books about trend following that are that are more re- uh, written for the uh, for the casual uh, audience. Yeah. So that, that's that's on my my nightstand. I've actually reached out to Alex to uh, see if he wouldn't come in and 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 join me on the podcast, but uh, he's still to uh, get around to the idea. So if you're listening, Alex, please do so. Um, now, based on everything you've learned, Mike. If you could go back and start and talk to your younger self, what would you tell yourself? What would you do differently potentially based on everything you've learned in in this business? Well, it's it's funny you should say that because I I clearly remember uh, in the early days of my career in New York, I'm sitting on a trading desk and um, it probably worked a double shift between the European markets and the U.S. And I remember one of the older um, guys on the desk saying to me uh, the words work-life balance. Mm. And um, it was the first time I had heard that because having read all of these books and and started my career on Wall Street uh, as a young, hungry individual, um, I, I knew I only knew one word out of those two, and that sure. was the work, not the life portion. Sure. Um, and, you know, he said to me, you're, you're going to be, you know, a happier employee, you'll be a more productive employee, and you'll last longer both on this planet and in this industry if you remember to always have that, that work-life balance. And I think that um, when I think about the life portion, I would really break that into, you know, health and family. Mm. And I think it's so important that you take the time. It's really easy to get busy with with all of the things that we do um, to, uh, you know, to, to fall into the trap of eating poorly or not working out. Um, and then we all know in this industry that with all of the travel that's involved and, you know, trading 24-hour day markets, that it's easy to also kind of not spend enough time with your family. Um, that's time that uh, you never get back. And mm. As I said, I have you know two young children that I really enjoy spending time with, as well as my wife, and um, and even in the last ten years, I, I wish that I had done a better job of of managing that that work life balance. And so, as a as a leader, it's something that I, I talk to my employees about on a regular basis, and want to make sure that they that they try uh, to live that out. Since maybe I didn't listen as well in my my early twenties. Sure. Oh, it's a, a very very valid point for sure. On a more what should I say, fun um, topic. Is there a, 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 a fun factor about yourself you can share that maybe even people who know you reasonably well, maybe even your executive committee doesn't know about you? Uh, I, I think my uh, <laughs> my inner circle pretty much knows uh, everything and, and more than they would ever want to know. But right. I, I think that the fun factor that often surprises people um, is that I speak Japanese. Sure. Um, as I as I mentioned, when I uh, started off uh, in university, uh, they were I think they were offering French, Spanish, Latin, and and then Japanese, which not many of the students were signing up for. And for <laughs> me, as as somebody growing up studying the markets in the 80s and 90s, when Japan was really um, one of the powerhouses in the marketplace. Um, for me, that just was a perfect fit. And so I, I absolutely um, loved studying uh, Japanese in university. I, I made it my second major. I ended up uh, going to uh, um, uh, Kansagara University in Osaka, Japan during my undergraduate studies. Uh, I had an, an amazing experience there and was actually fortunate enough being in this industry uh, to travel back to Japan last year to speak at an industry event. Mm. And um, probably my favorite part of the whole trip was uh, the look on 
on about a hundred people, institutional investors who were at the uh, the conference, the look on their face when I I did the first five minutes of my presentation in Japanese. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, even the translator was a bit taken back because I probably should have told her that I wasn't going to be speaking English. I, I, she had a hard time translating Japanese to Japanese. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it was it was a great experience and and one that I'm. I'm very glad that I had the, the privilege to have. So that, that's probably a, a fact that not everybody knows about me. Sure. No, absolutely. That's a, that's a great, uh, great story. Now, I said earlier that, you know, uh, if you could ask a question of uh, someone, and, and indeed also you alluded to the fact that, you know, what is the question that investors fail to ask you or, or don't know to ask you? But let's also turn it around to uh, to uh, to me, and that is, what have I missed today? Is there anything that uh, we need to bring up uh, at, at the last moment here? And I do have one more question that I want to ask you at the very end, but just generally, uh, I want to make sure that we've done justice to you, done justice to Campbell and Company, covering all the the important points. Uh, is there anything you can think of uh, that we should bring up? No, I mean, I, I think that um, you've done a, an incredible job of, of covering not only the industry, but, but Campbell and Company, its history and, um, and where we are uh, presently. I, I think the most important question to ask at this point, which I'm guessing is your last one, is um, w- what does the future hold for, for Campbell and for Managed Futures? Absolutely. That is my last question. So please, uh, please go ahead. Great. Um, I mean, listen, I get this question as, as we all do in the industry uh, almost daily. Um, and you alluded to the fact that during that tough period of performance over the last four to five years, many uh, folks in, in, the, in the world ask the question, is managed futures broken? Is it, uh, does it work? Um, will, it, will it work in the future? And not only am I pleased that in the last you know, six to 12 months, the performance of, of managed futures has, has gotten um, considerably better. Um, but it's it's done so in a period where you know traditional assets aren't doing nearly as well as they were the last five years. So I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that they do need to have diversification in their portfolio. That there is a value to having lowly correlated uh, strategies in in the mix. Um, so interestingly enough, um, we started doing some research in recent months on what are the you know asking the question what what are the next five years hold for managed futures and obviously that includes Campbell and Company. I thought it was interesting that the National Economic Bureau put out um, some findings recently where they were making an observation that you know if you consider September 09 as the low, we've effectively just hit the five year mark in this business cycle and they made mention of the fact that this is the longest business cycle in the post war period. Uh, of positive growth. So kind of in, in asking ourselves, is there something magic about that five-year duration? So as we looked back and, you know, it was interesting in looking at different asset classes over a five-year duration, we found that certainly equities have had a great run in the last five years, up a 130%, as I mentioned before. And then, as I also mentioned, the five years before that, unfortunately, were, were a negative period. Uh, so were the five years prior to that, 99 to 04, were, were also negative. And then I'm sure we all remember that equities did incredibly well in the late 90s with the NASDAQ and the, the tech boom. Sure. So, you know, we saw this, this um, cyclicality every five years or so in equities. Um, and then we started looking at managed futures and, and other alternatives like commodities and real estate. And what we found is, is that over those four or five-year cycles, though the last five years haven't been particularly good for managed futures, 
all three of the five-year periods prior to that, including the two where the equity markets, uh, you know, were negative, um, were were very positive for managed futures, and sure. so. As we look to the future and we think about from a macro standpoint that central bank intervention is decreasing, that though we are still continuing to see stimulus in places like Japan and and Europe, uh, certainly the UK and the United States are in the process of removing the stimulus and in fact contemplating higher interest rates. So as we're moving back to quote quote unquote a more normal period, you know, and and there's a shift in the in the regime out there, maybe this leads to a bit more volatility or even some losses for traditional assets. Uh, I, I feel that at least in recent times, it has certainly uh, created a, a number of opportunities. One example would be in the foreign exchange markets, which haven't produced a lot for managers like ourselves in recent years with mm-hmm. a lower vol as central banks all, you know, have the race to zero. But recently, as we start to see this deviation between, you know, like the, the Fed and the Bank of England raising rates and, and the ECB and the Bank of Japan uh, cutting rates and, and providing more stimulus, we're seeing real divergences, not only in interest rate policies, but also currencies mm-hmm. as people globally are, are trading those the, the, the carry and the imbalances there. So, um, I'm very opportunistic that there's some great opportunities out there on the horizon for managed futures. And I, I just hope that um, people uh, recognize that and, and start to early uh, allocate early and often as opposed to waiting like so many did to invest mm-hmm. in January of 2009 after the, the performance came, after the traditional assets suffered. And then the media writes the article to say, Managed Futures did such a great job. And people said, well, I don't have that in my portfolio, so it's time to add it. Hmm. I think it's people need to remember that period and learn from it. And if they don't have diversification right now in the portfolio, uh, in whatever form they choose to embrace it, I, I would highly recommend that, that they, uh, they move in that direction. Yeah, no, absolutely uh, well said. And actually, I think what many people don't, or maybe they haven't really noticed, but a lot of these uh, well-known uh, managed futures firms are actually getting back to close to or at new all-time highs and that's gone pretty unnoticed in the last uh, six months so uh, it is uh, yeah very important point now uh, just before we finish uh, our conversation today um, maybe you could share where uh, the listeners could, could, could find you and, and reach out to Campbell and company and learn more Yep. So uh, our website is www.campbell.com, and that that's the best place to uh, to reach me and to find all of our, our white papers uh, and and other information on the firm. Absolutely great. So it all it only leaves me, uh, Mike, to say thank you ever so much for taking more than two hours of your time. It has been great fun, incredibly educational, and very inspiring to uh, to talk to you and. Um, I hope that we can do this at a later stage again and uh, maybe uh, also catch up uh, in person at some point. So thank you very, very much, Mike. Thank you very much. We really appreciate you you doing this on behalf of the industry. We, as you said, have been educating people about the benefits of managed futures for over four decades, um, but we, we need help and, uh, and you're doing such a great job of that. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Mike. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. 
We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.